I recently read an interview with a neuroscientist about how the human memory works. Uh, this neuroscientist was asked about common wrong ideas people have about the human memory and how it works. Uh, this is what he said. One of the most common errors is the belief that there is a memory that sits somewhere in the brain like a file that we can retrieve without effort. That is not true. Memory is an active and an effortful process. Every time that we are bringing a past event to mind, we have to use effort to rebuild that memory. You must continually restore or resave that content in your brain. The point is that we have to work to remember things. We, are, we have to continually call them to mind or we are likely to forget. Memory is an active or an effortful process. Now, the truth is that people easily forget. Now, we forget simple things like where we put our phone or our keys. We forget more important things like people's names. I don't know how many of you I have asked your name a number of times. We forget appointments we have made and things that we have promised to do. Well, most troubling, we are quick to forget the Lord and his works if we do not continually call them to mind. Oh, the sad truth is that we will forget God's goodness unless we actively work to remember. Well, therefore, throughout the scriptures, God commands us to remember him and remember his works. Psalm 103.2 My soul bless the Lord and do not forget all his benefits. Psalm 105.5 Remember the wondrous works God has done. We are called to remember. And in God's kindness, he gave his people of old, and he gives us today things to help us remember him. He has given us his word that we can turn to continually. God commanded the people of Israel to observe the Sabbath each week in order to continually turn their hearts to him. Today, Christians are commanded to gather in church each week in order to remember the Lord through our singing and our praying and our preaching and through the ordinances. Actually, one of my biggest jobs as a pastor is just to remind you of things that you've heard already before. Well, God also commanded the Israelites to celebrate various feasts and festivals each year to remind them of what he had done for them in the past so that they would not then forget him in the present well, we find one of those festivals mentioned in our text for this morning, the Passover. It's what Patrick just read about for us from Exodus 12. So please turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 22. We're going to be in Luke chapter 22, verses 1 through 23. In this passage, we see Jesus and his disciples have come to Jerusalem to observe the annual Passover festival, just as God commanded. But we also learn that Passover, we learn in this passage that Passover was intended to point to something greater. It pointed to Jesus. It found its fulfillment in him. Therefore, in this passage, Jesus redefines Passover, and he calls his disciples to a new act of remembrance, the Lord's Supper. Like Israel used to celebrate festivals each year, well, God has now commanded his church to regularly observe the Lord's Supper. So we might always remember him and remember his salvation. So follow along as I read in Luke chapter 22, starting in verse 1. 
the festival of unleavened bread, which is called Passover, was approaching. The chief priests and the scribes were looking for a way to put him to death because they were afraid of the people. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, who was numbered among the twelve. He went away and discussed with the chief priests and the temple police how he could hand him over to them. They were glad and agreed to give him silver. So he accepted the offer and started looking for a good opportunity to betray him to them when the crowd was not present. Then the day of unleavened bread came when the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare it? They asked him. Listen, he said to them. When you've entered the city, a man carrying a water jug will meet you. Follow him into the house, he enters. Tell the owner of the house. The teacher asks you, where is the guest room where I can eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large furnished room upstairs. Make the preparations there. So they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. Then he said to them, I have fervently desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he said, Take this and share it among yourselves. For I tell you, from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and gave it to them, and said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But look, the hand of the one betraying me is at the table with me. For the Son of Man will go away as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. So they began to argue among themselves which of them it could be who was going to do it. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, as we come to this text and pray that your name would be glorified. I pray that your name would be glorified in the preaching of your word and that you would use your word to call us to remind, to, to remembrance. That we remember your salvation. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I have two points to help us to study and understand this passage this morning. The first is preparing for the old. See that in verses 1 through 13, preparing for the old. And the second, preparing for the new, verses 14 through 23. But first, preparing for the old. In verses 7 through 13, the word prepare or preparation is mentioned four different times. Now, repetition is often how the biblical authors chose to emphasize something. It's like their bold font. And so I believe we're supposed to notice this emphasis on preparation. Now, in these verses, I I think there's a comparison being made between the disciples' preparations for Passover and then the preparations for Jesus, the preparations that are being made for Jesus to be sacrificed on the cross. So on the one hand, the disciples are preparing for the Passover meal. However, preparations are also being made for Jesus, the true Passover lamb, to be sacrificed on the cross. That's what happens when Judas goes to the chief priest to betray Jesus. So we see in verses 1 and 6 that it was the day of unleavened bread, which is called Passover, when the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. What exactly was Passover? What was the feast of unleavened bread? 
Well, both of these festivals or these feasts recalled God's deliverance of Israel from their slavery in Egypt. Now, they were technically two different feasts. Passover was a one-day feast that happened before, the day before, the week-long feast of unleavened bread. But by Jesus' day, people had come to think of them as one festival. So Passover was commonly thought of as the first day of the feast of unleavened bread because they came back to back anyway. Well, as we just read a few minutes ago from Exodus 12, the Passover meal was when Israel remembered the night when God spared the firstborn children of Israel from death when he or or one of his angels passed through the land of Egypt, killing the, the firstborn of the land. On that night in history, God had commanded each Israelite household to sacrifice a spotless lamb and spread the blood of the lamb over the doors of their homes before then roasting the lamb and eating it alongside of bitter herbs. So the, the Lord passed over. He did not enter any house that had the blood spread over the doors. And so the firstborn children of Israel were spared from death. And as we thought about a moment ago in Exodus twelve fourteen, God gave this command to Israel. This day is to be a memorial for you. And you must celebrate it as a festival to the Lord. You are to celebrate it throughout your generations as a permanent statue. So I I assume that there are certain holidays that you celebrate in your home countries each and every year to remember significant events in your nation's history. So the UAE has National Day every year on December 2nd to remember the founding of the country. In the same way, God commanded Israel to recreate that Passover meal each and every year in order to remember his deliverance, his salvation of old, his rescue from slavery in Egypt. In fact, each and every year, at the end of the meal itself, someone in the family, usually the youngest son, was supposed to ask about the importance of the meal and the significance of the Passover night. Then the head of the household was to turn and explain the significance to explain the significance of the meal in that original Passover night. The elements of the meal itself, they reminded Israel of the redemption from Egypt. So they ate a lamb again, of course, as a reminder of the lamb that was sacrificed for their salvation. The bitter herbs that they ate along with the lamb were to be reminders of the bitter years of slavery that uh, Israel had spent in Egypt. And the unleavened bread that they ate was a reminder of how quickly they had, they had to flee Egypt. They did not have time for their bread to rise, and so it remained unleavened. And it, was, it was this meal that Jesus commanded his disciples to go and make preparations for. As Robert Stein explains, these preparations would have been extensive. They would have included overseeing the sacrifice of the lamb in the temple, seeing that the lamb was roasted, preparing the place where the feast would be eaten, preparing all the side dishes, and purchasing the unleavened bread and wine. They were preparing to celebrate this old festival, to remember God's salvation of old. But as I mentioned earlier, As the preparations for this meal were taking place, there were other preparations being made as well. 
the preparations for Jesus to be arrested and for him to be sacrificed on the cross. And what you need to know if you're to understand these verses, really if you're just to understand the Bible, is that Jesus is the true Passover lamb. Jesus is the true Passover lamb. The lambs that were sacrificed in Israel's escape from Egypt, well, that really happened, but ultimately they pointed forward to Jesus, the lamb of God, who would shed his blood so his people could be forgiven, spared from the wrath of God, and given eternal life. So as the disciples were busy overseeing the sacrifice of the lamb for their dinner, preparations were being made for the true Passover lamb, Jesus Christ, to be sacrificed on the cross. So look at verse 2. As they had been doing for some time now, the religious leaders were still looking for a way to arrest Jesus and to put him to death. But they were looking for a way to do it quietly because they feared the reaction of the people. Jesus was popular. They didn't want a riot on their hands. And so they did not dare do it when the crowds were present. So they they were looking for another way. Well, much to their delight, along came Judas, the solution to their problems. He could tell them exactly what they wanted to know. He could tell them when and where they could find Jesus when no one else was around. No CCTV in those days. They couldn't be monitoring the security cameras to figure out when Jesus was alone. And so they were very happy to pay Judas for this information and for his betrayal. Therefore, for a a small amount of money, Judas agreed to betray the Son of God. But look back at verse 3 for a minute. Luke writes that Satan entered Judas before Judas went to the chief priest and temple police to betray Jesus. What does it mean that Satan entered Judas? Who was responsible for Jesus' betrayal? Was it Judas? Or was it Satan? Friends, I I think we can rightly say that it was both. This is how Tom Schreiner puts it. Satan enters Judas, but at the same time, Judas makes his own choices and decisions. Satan can gain control of Judas only because Judas allows it. And yet Judas' giving of himself to evil allows evil to become even stronger in his life. Indeed, Judas is now beyond the reach of goodness. He has given himself entirely to evil. So in John's Gospel, in John chapter 13, verse 2, we read that before Satan ever entered Judas, the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas to betray Jesus. To betray Jesus. He had already planted that seed of, of temptation in his mind. John chapter 12, verses 5 and 6 We read that when Mary broke an expensive jar of perfume in order to anoint Jesus' feet, well, Judas complained. Judas objected. He said, why wasn't this perfume sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? But then Luke writes this. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He was in charge of the money bag and would steal part of what was put in it. The point is that Before Satan ever entered Judas, Judas had given his heart over to to greed and evil. He had listened to the devil's lies. He had given opportunity to the devil 
Now, Satan was behind Judas's actions, but Judas was responsible for his own choices. Just look down at verse 22 of our text for a moment. Jesus could say, Woe to the man who betrays me. Because that man, Judas, was responsible for his actions and would be justly judged. Now, friends, you cannot excuse your own sin or your own poor choices by saying, the devil made me do it, or that was the work of of a demon. You may have been tempted by the devil's lies. That's certainly true. But you're responsible for your own choices, just as Judas was responsible for his. Now, Satan wants nothing more than to lead God's people astray. What does Paul write in Ephesians? He writes this. Do not give opportunity to the devil. That's his exhortation to you, Christian. Do not give opportunity to the devil. Church, you give opportunity to the devil when you tolerate sin in your life. When you hold on to anger or bitterness. When you leave your anxiety unaddressed. When you just complain day after day after day. When you allow greed or envy to to take root in your heart. When you persist in in knowingly doing what is wrong. But when you do these things, you give opportunity to the devil. Church, we're not as different from Judas as we would like to think. Now, I want to be clear. If you're a Christian, you cannot be possessed by the devil or the demon. You have been filled by the Spirit. But you can give opportunity to the devil. You can be tempted by Satan. And friends, we are tempted to hold on to sin in our hearts as well. We are tempted to give opportunity to the devil. Just take greed and envy as one example. That's the one that we see in Judas's life. Friends, ask yourself, do these sins lead you to betray, betray Jesus in small ways? Are you tempted to resist Jesus' commands to be generous to others because you want to hold on to what you have? Do you struggle to be content with what the Lord has provided? How often do you complain against the Lord or grumble against the Lord? Has greed or envy created division between you and other people? Have you mistreated others to get money? Have you been slow to forgive others over issues of money? Beloved, you cannot serve both God and money. But church, do not forget what James writes in his letter. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. It's a promise to Christians. If you, Christians who have the spirit of God. If you resist the devil, he will flee from you. How do you resist the devil? Well, certainly through prayer. We're going to see that later in Luke chapter 22 in a a couple of weeks. But brothers and sisters, you also resist the devil through repentance. This is the fullness of what James writes. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, sinners. Purify your hearts, double-minded. Brothers and sisters, if you want to resist the temptations of the devil, if you do not want to give opportunity to the devil, do not harbor sin in your heart. Confess it. Repent. 
draw near to Jesus by repenting and turning from your sin. Beloved, Judas made no effort to flee from the devil. He held on to his sin. He did exactly what he wanted to do. Do not make the same mistake. Church, the other thing I want you to see is that though Satan was active in Jesus' betrayal, nothing, nothing happened outside of the plans or purposes of God. It was all under his sovereign control. Look at verse 21. Judas's betrayal was not a surprise to Jesus. The disciples argued amongst themselves who it would be. Jesus knew all along. But take a quick look at verse 31, which, uh, Lord willing, we're going to actually look at next week. So if you have your Bible, go to verse 31. Now, prior to Peter's betrayal, uh, Peter's denial of Jesus, it seems that Satan asked God for permission to test Peter. Well, just like God gave Satan permission to test Job, He gave permission to Satan to test Peter. Friends, even Satan himself is not not outside of the sovereign will of God. There are not two equal and opposite forces in the universe playing a tug of war. It's not like there's a tug of war in the universe between God and Satan. God is over all things, to include the devil. Look at verse 22 of our text. Jesus says this, For the Son of Man will go away as it has been determined. But woe to the man by whom he is betrayed. In other words, nothing about Jesus' betrayal was outside of the sovereign plan and purposes of God. It had been determined. Yet, Judas was absolutely responsible for his betrayal. Woe to the man by whom he would be betrayed. The same point is made in Acts 2.23. Though Jesus was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, you used lawless people or sinful people to nail him to the cross and kill him. Well, church, what we see in these verses are the two parallel truths that run throughout so much of the Bible. God's sovereignty, man's responsibility. God is sovereign. He is in control of all things. Proverbs 16.9, a person's heart plans his way, but the Lord determines his steps. Well, the late pastor R.C. Sproul had this to say about the sovereignty of God or his control of all things. He writes this, if there is one single molecule in this universe running around loose, totally free of God's sovereignty, then we have no guarantee that a single promise of God will ever be fulfilled. But beloved, we can have absolute confidence that all the promises of God will be fulfilled because there is not a single molecule in the whole universe that is running free or loose from the sovereign control of God. He is sovereign over all things to include our salvation. Man is responsible. Though God is sovereignly governing all things according to his will, the inescapable conclusion of Scripture is that each person is responsible for his or her actions. That is because we make willing choices to do the things that we do. We are responsible for our actions. Friends, your sin is your fault. The reason you sin is because you want to sin. 
Therefore, God's judgment is always just. Now, admittedly, it is something of a divine mystery how God can be sovereign, and at the same time that we can be responsible for our actions. But these truths are clearly compatible with one another. The Bible clearly teaches both. When uh, Pastor Charles Spurgeon was asked how to reconcile these two truths that we see in the Bible, he said this, I would not try. I never reconcile friends. Church, when we think about the responsibility of man, or you might say the free will of mankind, perhaps it would be helpful to think of a fish swimming through the ocean. That fish is free to go wherever he wants to go, but his freedom has limits. He cannot leave the water. He cannot choose to to walk around on land. But the fish doesn't even know that there is a world outside of the ocean. He's blissfully unaware. He has no idea that he has limits on his freedom. So it is with us in our sin. We're born with a sinful nature. We inherited the, the sin of our first parents, Adam and Eve. And like the fish trapped in the ocean, unable to leave, we are imprisoned by our sin and unable to free ourselves. We are slaves to our sin. Like the fish, we don't even realize that there is a world outside of the prison of our sin. Our eyes are blind. Our ears are stopped up. We're free to make willing choices in a way that we do not realize our freedom is limited. Left to ourselves, we cannot and we will not choose to please God. What we need in order to leave the water of our sin is we need to be made new by God's Spirit. We need to be given spiritual lungs to breathe the air outside of the water. We need to be given legs to to walk. God must act in his sovereign power and his grace to rescue us from our sin and make us new so that we can have the new freedom to walk in a manner worthy of him. So again, God is sovereign. Man is responsible. Friends, these two truths are friends. It is true that Jesus was betrayed by Judas' sinful actions. But it is also true that God had prepared before the foundation of the world to send his son as the true Passover lamb to be the atoning sacrifice for his people. We see in these verses that as the disciples were preparing for the Passover feast, Jesus was preparing to be sacrificed on the cross. That takes us to the second point of the sermon, preparing for the new. Look again at verse 14. After the disciples made preparations for the Passover, the hour or the time came to feast together. Now, this is Jesus' last supper with his disciples because the the hour had also come for the completion of Jesus' time on earth. His, His hour was at hand. And church, what you need to see is that as Jesus eats this Passover meal with his disciples, he redefines the meaning of the Passover feast. Jesus redefines the meaning of the Passover feast. He teaches that in him, in Jesus, Passover finds its fulfillment. And so he gives his disciples a new feast to celebrate, to remember a new and greater salvation. Jesus gives his disciples and he gives us the Lord's Supper. Look at verses 19 through 20. And he took bread. 
gave thanks, broke it, gave it to them and said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. Again, church, Jesus is the true Passover lamb. As the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 5-7, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. 1 Corinthians 5-7, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Friends, there is a reason that Jesus was betrayed and crucified during the Passover festival. God planned it that way from the beginning of time to teach us about the nature of Jesus' sacrifice. God is the Lord of history, sovereignly governing all things to accomplish his purposes. All those lambs sacrificed that night long ago in Egypt, pointing forward to Jesus' death on the cross. The Israelites were, were spared from death because of the blood of that lamb spread on their doorposts. In a similar way, all those today who are covered by the blood of Jesus will be spared from the wrath of God. They will not face eternal judgment, but instead receive eternal life. Uh Oh, church, it is Jesus' sacrifice for us that we remember each and every time we take the Lord's Supper. We remember that he has passed over us. The Lord's Supper is our Passover meal. It is the true Passover meal. Now, we do not believe the bread and the wine are transformed into the real body and blood of Jesus during the Lord's Supper, as the Roman Catholic Church teaches. The Bible does not teach that. It's a teaching foreign to Scripture. No, we believe they represent or symbolize Jesus' body that was broken. They symbolize his blood that was shed. Therefore, each and every time that we take the Lord's Supper, we remember his sacrifice. We call it to mind. Remember, memory is an active and an effortful process. If we do not continually or routinely call something to mind, we will forget it. So God in his grace has given us the Lord's Supper. It's not the only thing he's given us, but it's a big thing that the Lord has given us. That being said, I want to point out three important things that the Lord's Supper reminds us of. First, the the Lord's Supper reminds us of our fellowship with Christ. Look at verse 15 for a moment. Jesus told his disciples that he fervently desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Even facing the prospect of death on the cross, even knowing that he would be arrested and beaten later that night, he delighted to eat the Lord's Supper with his disciples. And what a sign of love for his disciples. Beloved, Jesus delights to fellowship with his people. He delights to commune with his people. Well, how are we brought into this intimate fellowship? It's through Jesus' blood. Look at verse 20. Through his death, Jesus was instituting a new covenant with his people. He was sealing it with his blood. Just as the old covenant had been sealed by blood, the people had been sprinkled with the blood of sacrifices. So Jesus seals the new covenant with his blood. You don't need to turn there, but we find the content of this new covenant in Jeremiah chapter 31. In Jeremiah 31, the Lord promises to transform his people from the inside out by writing his law on their hearts. He would make them new. 
He promises, I will forgive their iniquity and never again remember their sin. Jesus, the once for all sacrifice by which all our sins, past, present, and future, are forgiven. And God promised that all his people would truly know him. He would be their God and they would be his people. We would have everlasting fellowship with the God of the universe through the blood of Jesus Christ. Beloved, every time we take the Lord's Supper then, we are reminded of these new covenant promises. We have new life. We have forgiveness. We have fellowship with God through the blood of Jesus Christ. Well, in this way, the Lord's Supper defines the people of God. It marks us out. It sets us apart. The Lord's Supper is a meal reserved for Christians. Foreigners to Israel, well, they were not allowed to eat the Passover meal unless the members of their household were circumcised. Unless they became like an Israelite. Unless they had the sign of the Old Covenant. Well, so people today must become a Christian before eating the Lord's Supper. The meal is reserved for those who have repented of their sins, who have placed their, their faith in Jesus, and who have been baptized, which is the sign of God's new covenant. It's a meal for God's new covenant people. Feasting is a sign of fellowship. And so those who are invited to, to eat the Lord's Supper are those who share fellowship with Jesus by virtue of their faith with him. Friends, if you are here and not a Christian, I want you to know that you too can have fellowship with God. God's new covenant promise to you is that no matter what you have done, no matter what you have done, all of your sins, past, present, and future, will be forgiven in an instant. God will remember them no more. They will be covered by the blood of Jesus if you repent and place your faith in him. The truth is that we are all born sinners by nature, separated from God, unable to please him. We have all willingly rebelled against God, and therefore we rightly deserve the judgment of God. But in his great mercy and love, God sent his son, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, to live the life that you should have lived. Jesus lived a, a perfect life, perfectly obedient to the Father. He was the pure and spotless Lamb of God. And therefore, he was qualified to offer his life as a sacrifice for sin. But Jesus did this when he went to the cross and died the death that you deserve to die. His body was broken for you. His blood was shed for you. It was spilled on behalf of all those who would ever repent and believe. And three days later, he was raised from the dead, showing that God had accepted his sacrifice for sin. His sacrifice was full, final, sufficient, complete. And therefore, all who repent of their sins, turn away from their sins, and place their faith in Jesus Christ, receive forgiveness and eternal life and eternal fellowship with him. So friends, if you've never trusted in Jesus Christ, if you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, let me urge you to do it today. You can be covered by the blood of Jesus. Church, it is this great salvation and our intimate fellowship with Jesus that we remember and celebrate every single time we take the Lord's Supper. But we're not just reminded of this fellowship. 
We, we experience something of our fellowship with Jesus. We, we commune with him. Pastor Bobby Jameson puts it this way. Think about what happens in preaching. You show up on Sunday morning already trusting in Christ. But when the pastor proclaims Christ from the scripture, the gospel comes to you again in power. In that moment, you embrace Christ anew. You trust him more fully. You submit to him more earnestly. You experience forgiveness and peace with God more intensely. Something similar happens in the Lord's Supper. Christ is already yours by faith. But when you receive the bread and wine, you receive him all over again. The physical signs of the bread and wine support and strengthen your faith. Brothers and sisters, the Lord's Supper is not how we're forgiven of our sin. It reminds us that our sins have been forgiven and that we have fellowship with Jesus. Second, the Lord's Supper reminds us of our fellowship with one another. The Passover meal was traditionally eaten together by families in their home. But here, Jesus celebrates the Passover with his disciples. He fervently desired to eat this last Passover meal that he had on earth with his disciples. His disciples ate it with him. Well, Jesus is teaching us something. Jesus' family are those who believe. That is who has fellowship with him. And because we have fellowship with him, we are brought into fellowship with one another. This is why the proper place to celebrate the Lord's Supper is not in our homes with our biological families, but in the church, among the family of God. Church, when we're united to Jesus through faith, we receive a new family. We receive a a family of faith. And one way that we show our love and our fellowship with one another is by taking the Lord's Supper together in unity. Notice in verse 17, when Jesus took the cup, he called the disciples to share it among themselves. Feasting together is a sign of our fellowship together. In 1 Corinthians 11, when the Apostle Paul warned the Corinthians not to take the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, he was warning them not to take it when they were divided from one another. To take the Lord's Supper when we're divided from one another and mistreating one another would be to miss the whole point of the Lord's Supper. If we delight to fellowship with Jesus, we should delight to to fellowship with his people. If we love Jesus, we should love his people. Our lives are to be marked by unity, and the Lord's Supper is to be a sign and a seal of this unity. Friends, the, the Lord's Supper is a community meal in which we remember that we have been united together as a family through the blood of Jesus. As one author helpfully puts it, Remembering the past can strengthen our love for one another in the present. It may strengthen our love for one another as families. In our biological families, we have photos and videos to remind us of days past. Some past events become part of the family tradition and are told over and over again because they are particularly significant or humorous. His point is that uh, photos can help build our bonds as a family. They build our identity together as we look at them with one another and remember together as we tell the stories that those pictures remind us of. Well, so it is with the the family of God. Our unity is strengthened as we together recall God's salvation through the Lord's Supper. We remember over and over and over again what binds us together. 
our differences are diminished and our unity in the gospel takes center stage. That's what happens in the Lord's Supper. It reminds us of our fellowship with Jesus. It reminds us of our fellowship with one another. And third, it reminds us of God's promises for the future. Beloved, the Lord's Supper anticipates a greater fulfillment to come. Look again at verses 16 and 18 of our text. Jesus told his disciples that I will not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Just like the original Passover feast was replaced by the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Supper will one day be replaced by something greater. Look again at verse 22. Jesus told his disciples that he was going away. He was preparing them for his departure. The Lord's Supper was given to strengthen their faith during the time that he was gone. It strengthens our faith in the time that Jesus remains away. It's to strengthen our faith that we will one day be with Jesus again. That we will eat with him. He was reminding his disciples that he would one day eat with them again. Beloved, one day the Lord's Supper will be replaced by a much greater feast. One day the the bride of Christ, the church of God, will be presented to Jesus in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. It will be a day of celebration and feasting. It will be the great great marriage supper of the Lamb. Well, the Lord's Supper ultimately points us forward to that much greater feast to come. This is why Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11.26, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Well, the Lord's Supper is a reminder that Jesus will come again. There will be a day of greater feasting. We eat the Lord's Supper in anticipation of that day. We eat until he comes again. Beloved, we are a forgetful people. Therefore, we need to be continually reminded of Jesus' sacrifice so that we will trust in nothing else. We need to be continually reminded of our fellowship with one another so we persevere in love. We need to be continually reminded of his promise to come again so that we do not doubt. Memory is an active and an effortful process. As Tom Schreiner so helpfully writes, remembering is not merely a mental recollection of Christ's love for us. There is a kind of remembering that changes our lives, that makes us different people. There is a kind of remembering remembering that summons us afresh to the truth that our whole lives depend upon the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Beloved, true remembering is not just to have the truths of Scripture and the truth of God's love flow to our minds. They must flow to our hearts. They must change us. We must trust in them and and rely on them. And so, church, as we take the Lord's Supper together in just a moment, Take time to truly reflect on the enormity of Jesus' love for you. Take time to rejoice in the fellowship that you have with him. Pray for God to grow you in your love for for one another. Set your hope on Jesus' promise to come again. And as these truths flow to your hearts through the Lord's Supper, you commune with Christ. 
come to enjoy again and in some way experience again the joy of his salvation. So brothers and sisters, remember. Let's pray.